that was like the first time I really thought like, okay, this is the kind of sound that I'm attracted to. And it, maybe it wasn't the type of thing where I was like, this is the kind of music that I'm going to make. But it was, it was an experience that I, I found myself inexplicably drawn to. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. A native of Calgary, Canada, Sarah Devachi occupies a space that's not typical of many musicians, both in terms of what she creates and how she got to where she is today. Holding a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Calgary and a master's degree in electronic music and recording media from Mills College in Oakland, California, she's also a researcher of organology and hermeneutics and has been published and presented in North America and Europe. In her own words, her projects are primarily concerned with disclosing the delicate psychoacoustics of intimate aural spaces, utilizing extended durations and simple harmonic structures that emphasize subtle variations in overtone complexity, temperament and intonation, and natural resonances. She applies analog synthesizers, piano, electric organ, pipe and reed organ, voice, tape replay samplers, orchestral strings, and woodwinds to create haunting and deeply evocative soundscapes. The first song chosen by Devachi as being essential to her was Todd Rundgren's Dust in the Wind. Here we go. Coming at ya. Tell everyone that I am sorry, truly sorry For all of the wrongs I've done I never meant to hurt nobody, no Lord, I never want to do no wrong
So this song, um, it's kind of a, I mean, I picked it because it's just sort of a song that I've been listening to a lot lately of his, but it could have been any number of Todd Rundgren songs, to be honest. There is like a wide category of songs um, from his repertoire that are all kind of fitting the same um, mood that I think this song does. Um, for me, Todd Rundgren, I mean, it's always kind of um, met with a bit of surprise, I would say, when people discover that I adore Todd Rundgren's music. Um, and a lot of the influential music, I would say, um, on what I do and, and the way that I listen to sound and the way that I appreciate sound um, comes from this era, especially like, you know, 70s, really like heavy production type of like rock popular music. Um, so yeah, a lot of people tend to be surprised when they discover that I, I like that type of music. And for me, Todd Rundgren is kind of like the apex of all of that. Um, I think most people know him as a solo musician, but he was also a very um, in-demand producer as well. And a lot of the music that he produced, you can hear, you know, it sounds like his aesthetic. And I think he has a very clear aesthetic um, that I admire just from, you know, like a, a surface level perspective, but the way that he works and the way that he deals with like every aspect of music, like songwriting and then production and instrumentation and things like that, um, I find really quite inspiring. And this album that this song is on, especially, um, which is something, anything I think is just full of songs that hit all of those marks that have this really like clever, songwriting and I have kind of a thing um like a bit of a penchant for really nice harmonies and intervals and things like that and he does a lot of that in his songs and he tends to like really he emphasizes them in a way that I think is interesting and kind of unusual for a lot of like people who write like you know rock songs or rock ballads or things like that um and I guess I feel a bit of an affinity for the way that he writes music, because I think his music is very much keyboard based, um, which I guess a lot of music from that era was probably written more often than not on guitar rather than piano. And I think his approach, I can sort of hear in it that it's a bit more keyboard minded. Um, so maybe that's part of the reason why I, I feel a bit of an affinity for it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, the main thing about Todd that I really admire and what he does is his approach to production, that everything is just in the right place at the right time and all of these little details, whether it's in his voice or in one of the backing voices or one of the instruments or even like the way that he deals with guitar solos, which sometimes in that kind of music um, can be a little bit obnoxious. He does it in this really like elegant and kind of restrained, always like with a creative basis behind it. And a lot of the sounds that you hear on this record and the same kind of stuff that was happening around the time that this record came out, um, which is like the early 70s, there are sounds in it that I've never heard in other types of pop music, even from that era. So even though the music I make sounds absolutely nothing <laughs> like this, um, for me, being able to think about those kinds of things, like working in this kind of normative genre, but being able to make your own aesthetic through the production side of things has been really, really influential for me.
I think you're right. I don't think most people who know your music would hit on Todd Rundgren as a influence, at least not right away. Um, but it does seem like there's a similarity in that you're both solo artists who uh, often play everything on your recordings. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I can definitely see it that way now that you pointed it out. Um, and he, I think, was also is also a bit of a control freak in that regard. And I think I'm a similar way. I mean, when I do work, obviously when I'm working by myself, I take care of like every aspect. Like I do the recording, I do all the performing, I do the mixing and and everything is just like a one man kind of show. Um, But even when I'm working with other musicians um, in the studio space, it's, it's pretty like, um, I don't know if collaborative is necessarily the right word, but it's a lot more open to the way that people like to play and, the things that they're kind of feeling intuitively uh, based on the directions that I'm giving them. And I don't know if it was the same way for him or other people who are like that, who like to have a lot of control, but definitely after the fact, like once everything's recorded, all of the, like the aesthetic side of it, the production side, the mixing, the editing, everything um, from my perspective is yeah. Under, under my control, it usually ends up sounding a lot different than it did in the studio. (laughs) When would you have first heard him and under what circumstances? I was wondering about that. Um, I can't remember exactly when I first started listening to him. I think it was a bit later. I mean, I've always, um, people who know me well kind of know that I've been kind of a classic rock junkie my whole life. I have older siblings, so I think I got into it through them. Um, so I was definitely listening to a lot of stuff that was similar Um, but I guess it was probably only like maybe five years ago, something like that, that I actually, I mean, I'd heard songs like, you know, some of the more popular songs of his. Um, but yeah, it was probably about five years ago that I first listened to a wizard, a true star. And I don't even remember why, like if somebody told me about it or how I came across it. Um, but I remember listening to it and thinking that it sounded like a really, pop version of like Frank Zappa or something like that, that it was just this weird, there was something about the quality of it that was really bizarre to me and really like caught my attention. And it normally wouldn't be music that I would like that much from like a songwriting perspective. I mean, there are, there are a lot of aspects of it that when other bands tend to do, you know, like certain types of backing vocals or things like that, I tend not to like it as much. Like I'm also a really big um, Pink Floyd fan and it's that era of music that they did that has similarities to this type of music that I actually don't like with, with them. So yeah, there's something about the way that Todd does it, that he just pulls it off in like a really interesting way and everything that he does just sounds like him, you know? I have to say, knowing you mainly through your music, uh, the classic rock uh, thing is a little surprising. Oh yeah. Yeah. I grew up listening. I mean, like I say, I have, I have a brother who's 11 years older than me. He grew up in the seventies. So yeah, he, I think listening to like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Dire Straits and all of that kind of stuff growing up, that was, I mean, that's just like really comfortable music for me. And I think when I got into like my maybe late teen years that's when I sort of started to have more of a sense of the specific 
aspects that I liked about it and having more of like a, a taste for things and be to be more discerning about it. And yeah, I think as I got into like my early 20s, I started to get more into like very specific era of that type of music and, and more specific sounds. And I think it was probably more like Pink Floyd, like some of the earlier weirder records that I, I started to like that quality of sound and, and would seek that out. A lot of that music has, um, you know, this really lush detailed sound. And now that you mention it, I can totally hear that. Yeah. I think that quality of sound. Um, I mean, I, regardless of the type of music that I'm listening to, I always um, look for musicians or producers or whoever um, who have an attention to detail. I really, um, I really admire that in music and then people who just have taken the time and, and patience to actually like be considered about all of the sounds that you're hearing. Um, even down to like, you know, really small timbres that just kind of come in and out like a certain instrument that just comes in and out every once in a while. Um, having that attention to detail is something I really respect, but then also just having this kind of like, like washed out, quality of sound like um even before i was playing around with these kinds of instruments i always loved the sound of like electric organs like the hammond b3 and mellotrons and things like that like these instruments that sounded familiar but just had this other kind of quality to them that didn't quite sound exactly right um i always kind of uh found myself drawn to that and i've never i don't play guitar i never grew up having like much of an interest in the guitar as an instrument necessarily. Um, but even like, you know, with certain musicians like Todd Rundgren or even Pink Floyd to an extent, um, the way that they treat that instrument and the sound at times is being a bit more akin to the other instruments that are happening around it, like to the vocals or the keyboards or things like that, having a sort of, sort of shared timbral quality. Um, I think that to me was always really appealing. Things that just weren't like cut and dry, like, Here's the guitar, here are the drums, here's the bass, whatever. As I lay me down to take my rest, I see that it's just us. The second song chosen by Devachi as being crucial to her development was Soft Machines, A Certain Kind. This track, um, this one was kind of a difficult one for me to pick um, because I wanted to pick a track that was sort of representative of a specific era and a specific type of sound and, and more so a specific way of making music that was really inspiring to me um, early on and still is. And I mean, this era and this type of scene I feel like is so um it has such a like 
branched out lineage. Like you can connect bands like Soft Machine to anybody else in the UK at the time who was doing like something related to prog or that type of music or like psychedelic rock or whatever. Um, and I also find connections between what was happening in the rest of continental Europe at the time, especially with um, a lot of the kraut rock music that I got into really early on. That was kind of the first thing that I got into um, with electronic music when I, um, you know, like when I first was looking at electronic instruments, I was listening to a lot of um, like really academic dry sounding stuff and that really didn't do anything for me. And when I got into this like era, like seventies sort of branching between popular music, rock music, and then sort of more like avant-garde practices. It was that type of music and the way that they were using electronic instruments that really um, hooked me. And uh, yeah, so for me, bands like Soft Machine um, all kind of come from this similar idea about how music can be made and what popular music can be and what records can be and what a live performance can be. Um, and this particular album, uh, I mean, this is my favorite soft machine record. And I think it's probably the most like in terms of aesthetic and sound, I think it's the most interesting for them. Um, and you can kind of hear the different elements, like what each person is contributing to it, especially if you've heard, um, other like offshoots, uh, that the bands have done like wildflowers or, um, uh, groups like that, or even their solo music. Um, yeah. And this track, especially, um, it starts out with like these different sections that I think is kind of interesting. And that's something that I'm thinking about more in my own music is being able to split things up in different ways. Cause, um, I've gotten so used to, I think just doing these like really elongated sounds. And so for me, it feels like the next progression is to kind of be able to split things up into sections a little bit more that still kind of blend together. And I feel like the song does that in like a nice way that it, it kind of flirts with all these different ways of making um, a song essentially. And especially the end part where it gets really a bit more loose um, having the organ kind of take over and the percussion and having everything just kind of build into this really beautiful afterthought. Um, I think it's a really nice way of, of thinking about a song. Well, you're known for music that features these long unbroken tones and uh, drones. And uh, on the first track of your latest album, Gabe and Rest, you start with an unbroken drone and then it stops and then restarts on a different note or chord. Uh, and then it does it again. And uh, given how your music usually works, it's, it's surprising. Yeah, definitely. And that is a funny one because I put that one as the very first track on the record. And I've I've had many people be like, is there something wrong with the track? Is it corrupt that it just keeps stopping? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of a more extreme version of the idea. I think maybe for me, just because I have, you know, for so long been in this mindset of like sounds need to connect to one another that the opposite of it was like I literally just need to like cleave the sound and not have any sound happening um I feel like other tracks are kind of meeting somewhere in the middle like I think on this record and on the previous record that came out this year there are moments where there are more like I mean I don't write songs and nothing that I do I think has anything like a song structure but 
there are moments where things kind of shift from one section to another. And I think that's kind of interesting. And that's definitely um, an influence from, you know, popular music or, or this, especially this type of music that, which, as I say, kind of bridges a gap between like pop music and more avant-garde experimental music. Do you remember how you first became attracted or attached to the type of sound that typifies your work now? Yeah. Um, I can actually, <laughs> I remember, um, I've mentioned in, uh, a few other interviews that I used to work at this, uh, musical instrument museum in the, my hometown in Canada. And, uh, I remember one day just like sitting at front of this, um, reed organ, this large reed organ. And I was just, I would like hold down an octave or a fifth or whatever on it for like just minutes and just let the sound go on and on. And I would get really lost in all the overtones and things that I was hearing. And that was like the first time I really thought like, okay, this is the kind of sound that I'm attracted to. And it, maybe it wasn't the type of thing where I was like, this is the kind of music that I'm going to make. But it was, it was an experience that I, I found myself inexplicably drawn to. Um, and then I guess later on, maybe like a year or so later when I started to listen to more, um, experimental music, like a lot of minimal music, like Lamont Young or early, some of Terry Riley's, um, less repetitive and more kind of like ambient minded music, I guess you could say like the Persian surgery dervishes records, stuff like that. Um, that became more of a reality for me that I could actually manipulate that type of listening experience into something concrete and something tangible. And that was probably like 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny that particular British or European experimental pop scene of the late sixties uh, and early seventies. Uh, I think it has a lot of ties to a lot of the sort of experimental music world of the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, again, of that type of music making, like this idea of having this collective, like, especially in the um, realm of Krautrock, there was, that was such a scene like with the Zodiac club and stuff like that, where it was this idea of, you know, musicians who were kind of half focused on the studio side of things and who are really getting into it in that way and were really taken by like technology and, and the side of production and stuff like that. And then who also equally had their footing in the live um, aspect and, and being able to collaborate with other musicians and having this idea of just kind of like making music in a more free way and you know working with sound as this is this build up of an experience and, and having people like the audience engage in a particular way that was really different from like, you know, being in a, a normal club or a theater or something where you listen to music in a, um, a really like removed sense. Um, yeah. And I think all of the bands from that era, like late sixties, early seventies, um, were really, really getting into that. And that was inspiring to kind of discover both sides of those, you know, like the, the recorded side and then also the live side. And I think also with that type of music, um, which I'm maybe was more like should have been more obvious to me, but wasn't until more recently is that so much of it is based on keyboards. You know, it's the same kind of thing that I mentioned with Todd Rundgren that I feel like maybe subconsciously because I hear the songs 
as having been written for piano more so than guitar. I feel like with this era of music and a lot of that like prog, that early sort of more experimental side of prog, um, a lot of it is based in these textures that are very much keyboard rooted, like with organs and mellotrons and stuff like that. And so I think for me, it feels like more of an intuitive connection to them that I can hear them and I can understand how it's built and I can replicate it in my mind, um, like intellectually and aesthetically. The third and final song Devachi chose as being essential to her was Barbaloo, opening title by Ennio Morricone. track that I picked um, I don't think I've ever like openly professed my adoration for Ennio Morricone um, so I wanted to do that now because um, again it's not exactly the type of music that I make and it's not the same style or anything like that but it's been as a composer he's been so inspiring to me from a pretty early age, I remember getting into his music as like a teenager initially. And again, it was, it was always just this sort of like intuitive thing where I heard it and I was like, there's something about that, that I like, or there's something about it that's catching my attention, but not necessarily having the language or whatever to understand it at that time. Um, but yeah, his, I mean, the world of film music is so vast and it's, I think it's more so than even popular music. I think that's really like um, personality based. You know, you can hear a soundtrack and even though it's usually always just orchestral, it's always the same kinds of instruments. There's something about it that you can really hear the personality of the composer coming through into it. And maybe it's because of the forms or, or whatever, but I noticed that especially with Ennio Morricone's music and the things that I appreciate about it, again, are, are probably similar things that I find in other types of music, like, again, this attention to detail. Um, but what I find is so compelling about his music is his choice of instrumentation and his way of orchestrating things, like the way that he gives really unusual instruments um, or unusual timbres, these really prominent lines, melodic lines, um, or just having weird you know, a strange approach to vocals or having whistling or something like that, like other types of noises that you wouldn't normally hear in um, uh, film music of that style. Um, and then also his having a bit of this affinity, like I kind of think of him as being a bit of this like rock star in the film composer, the soundtrack world. Um, you know, especially think of scores like Once Upon a Time in the West where there's so much like, electric guitar and there's harmonica and just these like really bizarre choices that he makes. Um, and so as somebody who 
is really drawn to the um, the way that instruments, the way that timbre and tone can be manipulated and can be a thing on its own that that captures the you know attention or the imagination or whatever of the listener. Um, I think he more than any other composer really um, understands that, and and that's what he's good at also, and it comes through in the music. And so this piece um, that I picked, it's the title uh, track from the film Bluebeard, um, which is the English version. I'm not going to say the Italian because I can't pronounce it properly, I'm sure, so I don't want to try. But it's a film from the early 70s. And I mean, the other thing that I think a lot of people find interesting about film music is, um, you know, it's meant to be paired with a film, right? It's meant to be paired with a visual, with a world um, that's been created by the people who are making the movie. And what's interesting is when you remove the visual aspect, I think that sense of, of the way that film music can create this kind of fictional world, like almost like a dream world that you're kind of jumping into knowing that it's not real. Um, I think that's still very much present and the type of world that Ennio creates with his music to me has always felt very like, I don't know, safe and like comfortable and there's something just very like secure to me about that so I guess just from a personal perspective it's it's always been this music that makes me feel very like comfortable to listen to Uh, it's interesting to hear you describe his music as comfortable because uh so much of what he does seems designed to be jarring um you know all the sound effects and grunts and whistles and odd instruments um but that certainly helps his music stand out and have a have a personality yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, um, I feel the same way. And I guess, yeah, just putting it into different words that it's, it's, um, it's definitely that idea of him. I mean, that's why I call him like a, the rock star, I guess, of the soundtrack world is because he does just kind of do whatever he wants. He makes whatever decision he wants. Um, and I, it's nice that he's obviously decades ago reached the status of being able to do that and get away with that. And I think that's something that's so, unfortunate in a lot of music especially people who are kind of like in the same um, stage that I'm at which is where there's all this pressure to kind of sound a particular way or especially if you're working in a studio and you're not sure and you just kind of tend to fall back onto things that are easier things that are familiar Um, especially I feel like it's kind of sad in like popular music or in rock music whatever because there's always this fallback to the regular instruments, you know, guitar, drums, and bass, whatever, where there's so much potential to do new things and to bring in other instruments. And I guess that that's a thing that connects all of these choices of mine is that, you know, Todd Rundgren, same way, he's not afraid to do like weird stuff in the studio and, you know, all of the bands in that prog scene, I mean, they're incorporating orchestral instruments and, and, organs and things like that into their music and and same with Ennio that he's he just even within the orchestra I mean you listen to like you can listen to a hundred years of you know music from the 19th century and you're probably not going to get the same inspirational sense that you do if you listen to a single soundtrack of Ennio's from that that group of instruments that belong to the orchestra Um, and so I think it's really unique that he's able to to showcase the instruments in such a beautiful and new way. You grew up in uh, Calgary, Alberta in the 90s and early 2000s. How how did you come across Morricone? 
Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I grew up, uh, my parents, um, have an affinity for, you know, classic movies. They're from that, you know, the baby boomer generation. So they're, they, I grew up watching all the epics, you know, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, stuff like that. So I think innately, I always had this appreciation for sort of large scale film music and what that can do. Um, and I guess with Ennio, that sort of came um, from being interested early on in Nino Rota uh, and his music um, coming from the, the Godfather and movies like that and just being really taken by this this quality that a lot of the Italian composers from that era seem to have. Um, I don't know when the first, I don't even know what the first movie that I saw that Ennio Marconi scored was. Um, but I remember as like, a in my early twenties or something, um, discovering these more like vignette style, like these weirder Italian, um, soundtracks that he had done that weren't for these larger movies, um, like that weren't for the Westerns and things like that. And that was like a new side of him that I hadn't seen where he was just making these like, almost like taboo kinds of pieces that were set to like these super like erotic kind of Italian movies. Um, but yeah, I think, I think to answer your question, it was, it was definitely just having this appreciation of these like epic movies early on and then kind of working my way through the Godfather, I suppose, <laughs> into Ennio and other Italian composers. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.